Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded the morning of February 15th, 2020. Yahweh willing, it will be broadcast at Christagenia this evening. Today, we have with us a friend in Britain who goes by the name of Truthvids. And you can find him on YouTube, on BitChute. Truthvids has been a friend now for probably a couple of years. He's a member of the Christagenia Forum. And he addresses audiences that are not two seed line identity Christians quite frequently and has even brought a lot of people to Christagenia and Christian identity through his online outreach, through his YouTube and BitChute channels. He makes videos which are really pretty good at bringing our message to common people who haven't yet heard it. He recently did a, an excellent video, e even though I was um, somewhat critical about it, it was still an excellent video called um, 100 Proofs That the Israelites Were White, I believe. And we recently shared that at Christagenia as well. So that's about all the introduction you're going to get out of me. How are you doing, Truthvids? Thank you for being here. Great, thanks. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's uh, an honor to be here. And I just wanted to say thanks for, you know, doing the Christogenia website and everything you do. If it wasn't for the website, I would probably have never came to the truth and keep going. Never stop. Praise Yahweh. Well, I, I appreciate that. And thank you. And praise Yahweh. He's the one that does it. Um. In your in in your well in your latest endeavors, you've had some friends that sort of split off because they found a gentleman called Charles Weissman, and this is you know a lot of people that are new to Christian identity don't understand all of the debates and arguments that we've had. In order to, and, and it's helped us over the years, it's helped us um, better defend our beliefs, better defend our doctrines, and formulate better arguments in support of them. This um, Charles Weissman, we've been through this. 20 years ago, we went through this. One of the earliest recordings that Clifton Emmerheiser ever made back in the 1990s, even before he started um, his writing ministry, was a recording titled Emmerheiser Debates Charles Weissman. And what Clifton did, because Weissman wouldn't actually debate Clifton, what Clifton did was he took one of Weissman's sermons and recorded it from one tape recorder to another and interspersed his own points in between Weissman's, state, Weissman's statements. That could be found on Clifton's website today. I actually have that recording on his website. Yeah. I, so I thought that just, uh, recording was absolutely brilliant, Bill. 
And I thought Clifton absolutely destroyed him. But yeah, evidently the, not everyone thinks that, that way. That's one of the first things Clifton did. It, it's um, perhaps it, it wasn't the best venue because it's it's not in writing on his website. And it would have been a lot easier to um, correct mistakes and improve on arguments if it was in writing on his website. But it is what it is. And, and it, it certainly does show how long we've been debating these things with a certain group of people who call themselves identity Christians. And then at the same time, they seek to eradicate the concept of identity from Christianity. And, and Ted Wyland and Stephen Ro Jones and James Brueggemann, I, I address these people in podcasts periodically. I just did this a few weeks ago. And, and Charles Weissman was a part of that group. Weissman, I, I don't like to um, speak badly about people at all, really. I mean, some people would be shocked that I said that, but I really don't like to speak badly about people. But I have to speak the truth about people. And when that's bad, that's just too bad. <laughs> it's Weissman died about 2016. He passed about four years ago. He was pretty old. He was five years older than my father. I don't know if he ever got to see any of my writing, but his debates against Two Seed Line, the, the things that he says about this truth that, that we seek to defend, it's all based on old arguments. It, it's based on the things that Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compare and people like that taught about two seed line, which I don't necessarily agree with, which I don't repeat. So some of these arguments are, are just obsolete, but a lot of his other arguments are just plain dishonest. So I would like to um, kick off this perhaps this series of, of presentations and address Weissman's entire book, that this um, What About Two Seed Line? And it's about um, 50 or 60 pages, I guess. So it cannot be addressed in one program. But we'll get through a chunk of it today. But I know that first you have some preliminary conversation that you want to have. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to explaining Two Seed Line, uh, you kind of need to have read the whole Bible. You know, you can't just understand one bit of the Bible. And you never understand uh, when you speak to people that the depth of their understanding, have they actually read the whole Bible? And that's why I think it's important just to go over a brief intro, just the basics, and so that people can piece it together. Because sometimes you really need to just step back, think about it logically, and how it all fits together, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, Christ gave a parable of a sower, and in one parable of the sower, it didn't have anything to do with um, seed as descendants. It had to do with seed at, as basically as truth, and that was where the sower threw some seed on firm soil, and it had deep roots, and it persisted. It, it lasted, it successfully grew and, and produced fruit. 
but other soil was thrown in into places where um, it was devoured by birds or choked out by <coughs> other more numerous plants and other places the seed was was dropped on ground that had very shallow dirt and and it didn't take root at all and and it died and it withered and, and yeah that could be you, you could think of races and people like that but it's also um representative of of knowledge of a willingness to develop your knowledge and study and with deep study comes great knowledge and when you study things deeply and become sure of your positions you're standing on firm ground and you're going to produce fruit your work is going to um your, your work is going to pay off and it's going to be evident to others so so that's if you want to um, learn something well, you better study for a long time. If you are superficial, you're not going to become established in your beliefs. You are going to build your house on shifting sand because you're going to be constantly changing your mind about things for a reason that you haven't given them deep study. So you can't establish a framework. Right. You can't establish a foundation for what you believe. Too many people come to Christian identity. They don't read their Bible. Most people haven't read a Bible at all. They hear parts of the Christian identity message. They, it really resonates with them. They take it and they run with it, but they really haven't studied so when they're challenged, when they meet with sophistic <clears throat> arguments that sound good, well, Weissman's arguments sound good, but they're all sophistry. And I'm going to prove that. When somebody who hasn't studied is met with these arguments, they fall apart because they don't know how to answer them. And they start to doubt that what they have learned is true. And they doubt it, whether it's true or not, they doubt it because they haven't studied it for themselves. You have to read the scripture. You have to make sure you can defend these things. And if you don't, if you haven't yet been to that point, you should not be debating these things in the public arena. You should be studying instead. That's the situation we're yeah. in. You can't learn this stuff from a three-minute YouTube or even from an hour-and-a-half Chris Degenia podcast. There's no way I could cram everything into a 90-minute podcast, everything that I, I, everything that I believe that I know, everything that I, I seek to defend, and, and everything that I believe is established that should be adopted as doctrine. I can't squeeze all that into a 90-minute podcast. I have 1,200 podcasts, and I still haven't said everything that I think I need to say. So that's, that's the way it is. You, you have to study. So most of these people out there running their mouths, they should be reading their Bibles first and, and actually 
have like a couple of lexicons, a couple of concordances, a few history books, and get established in in, in whether or not two seed line and and Christian identity are true before you try to debate it. That's that that's about all I should say about that for our purposes here. You you have a um I, I know you have a list of points that that we need a that you feel that we need a summary discussion of and and I'm ready to go there if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. And everything you said is so true. You have to have that basic framework. You can't just read, you know, a quick essay and then think you know it all. You need to keep studying. And also sometimes if you go and read the, you know, where people challenge Shi'i, then you can come back to, say, Christogenia and read the arguments and keep going back and forth so you know how to defend yourself and you know the defense of the position. Right. But yeah, I'd like to start with the seven-day creation. This can be like a mind block for people when they hear... Okay, so the angels miscegenated, and that's where we get all these bastard races from. But hang on, didn't Yahweh create the world in seven days? That leaves no time for this to happen. So when did the angels do this? But obviously, um, you've proven before that the world was not necessarily created in seven literal 24-hour days. It could be a much longer period than that. Would that be true, Bill? Well, well, absolutely. I mean, Christ's, Christ said that Abraham longed to see my day, and he did see it. So Christ had a, a ministry of one day. That There's a lot of uses of the word day in Scripture that cannot be taken literally. In prophecy, for instance, um, a, a day in prophecy is usually one year. And, and there are clearly... There, there are many prophecies where clearly by a day, a much longer period was actually meant, at least a year. Peter said that a day to the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. These days in Genesis were not literal 24-hour days, because the sun and the moon aren't created until the fourth day. If you don't have a sun and a moon, how do you measure a 24-hour day? They were just periods of time that to God himself may have been eons. And the creation is arranged into or described in seven days because, and it's clear that Moses was writing in, in or about 1450 B.C., that according to the work of Moses, the Adamic race, which was created at the end of the sixth day, was already at least, at the time Moses was writing, at least 4,000 years old and possibly older. The chronologies aren't perfect. And Moses was seeking to establish or lay the foundation for a society which was based around a seven-day cycle or a seven-day calendar. Now, there was no seven-day calendar in the surrounding cultures. 
in fact, the Greeks and Romans did not have <coughs> a seven-day week. The Akkadians didn't have a seven-day week, so far as I've ever seen in, in the literature I've read. The Egyptians didn't have a seven-day week. The seven-day week, I believe, was unique to the Hebrews. The Romans had a, a very strange calendar which split a month into different sections. The Ides of the month was the middle days of the month. Um, the Greeks had no, the Greeks had the month, but they didn't have a week until, um, I, I believe it was established in, in the fourth century after the Council of Nicaea, the seven-day week in, in Greek countries, in, in the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Greek Empire. So we take the seven-day week for granted as if it existed from the beginning. But the seven-day week only existed for the Hebrews from the time of Moses. And he described the creation in seven days and broke it down in, in those periods according to the word of God, because that would be the, the, the calendar foundation for the new society, which was being formed of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. So the word that the creation was, was in seven days, according to the word of God. And the society would be operated along those same lines where God worked six days and rested one. But those days are not necessarily literal days. And it's kind of um, parochial and sophistic to insist on that. And I understand that there are a whole um, group that, that, of theologians, mainstream denominational theologians, who insist on that literal seven-day creation, but their insistence is childish. There's no foundation for it. Right. And if it was, you know, potentially thousands of years, that would leave a lot of time before the sixth day when Adam was created for the angels, you know, to do miscegenate or do whatever they did. Um, well, well, I mean, precisely in terms of the Bible, not speak. Sorry, go on. Uh, I'm sorry. Precisely is all kinds of proof. Who did Cain marry? Why did he build a city? Why? And, and, and there are other arguments in, in Genesis chapter six, a lot of denominational theologians and even two seed line pastors of the past thought that the giants were the result of the sin between angels and women described in Genesis chapter 6. And that's not true, because we have to read Genesis chapter 6. There were giants in the earth in those days and after. That's what it says. So the giants were already in the earth. Where did they come from? Where did God create giants? Where are giants mentioned in Genesis chapter 1? If giants were already in the earth in Genesis chapter 6. So these things aren't saying what people think they're saying. The problem is that even most two seed line pastors of the past and, and still today 
and most other identity Christians still have a lot of these preconceived notions that came from universalist church baggage. And their preconceived notions are wrong. They have to wipe that slate clean and learn their Bible objectively all over again. Right. And um, some people say, you know, the Bible does not speak of anything before Adam, you know, apart from those literal, you know, quote unquote days, even though, you know, Revelation does speak of a falling of the angels. But non nonetheless, it's clear that something was going on before Adam kind. Well, well, in Isaiah chapter 45, I believe it's 45 and possibly it's repeated again in a chapter just before it or just after it, Yahweh says, show me the things that have been and the things that shall be that we may know that ye are gods. So not only do the prophets reveal the future to men, they also reveal the past. Show me the things that shall be and the things that have been, that we may know that ye are gods. So, because the prophets, in, in allegories and prophetic language, reveal the past as well as events that will be in the future, <coughs> we have to understand yeah. that, yes, the prophecies of God do explain things that happen in the past, but Christ had said that he came to reveal, reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And he said that in Matthew chapter 13. And he said it in relation to a parable explaining that there are people who are wheat in the world who were planted by God and people who are tares in the world who are planted by the devil. Does that mean that the devil is a supernatural spirit being equal to God? No, that's not what it's saying. It's not going there. That is an inference drawn by men. That's not what God said. So why do we suppose it? We shouldn't suppose it. That's dualism. Dualism is wrong. There's good and there's evil. That doesn't mean that there's a God of good and a God of evil. Or a good creator and an evil creator. That runs into Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is also a failure. Right, yeah. And I also just wanted to mention, I don't know how reliable it is, but there are some studies or archaeology that suggest that, you know, black quote unquote civilization is twenty, you know, twenty thousand years old, or at least that there are fossils for that. And the Chinese is slightly younger, ten thousand years old. And again, I don't know how reliable that is. But a lot of people would try and use this to disprove the Bible, you know, the literal seven-day creation. But if you have a CI belief, then this can potentially make perfect sense that the, you know, the angels were experimenting way before Adam Kind 
entered the scene, which would be about six, seven thousand years ago. And it all adds up and it all makes sense perfectly. Well, well right. And, and that gets into the, the, the next thing that I was going to explain about the, um, the fact that Christ came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And that revelation, even though a lot of it is found in his parables, the crucial element is found in the revelation, which is why we have the revelation. The revelation, the book of revelations is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And in Revelation chapter 12, there is a prophecy which actually relates to ancient times, prehistoric times, and it relates to the time of Christ, and it relates to things that would happen in the future. And it has at least three valid interpretations, which I can't possibly get into now. I have a whole book that explains it my Christ strike, my, my commentary on the revelation, which I actually hope to improve in within the next year or two. Um, the revelation describes a war in heaven. Now, does that mean a war in space? No, because in ancient language, heaven was, if you get into um, the Assyrian, Akkadian, and Sumerian, the Akkadian, and Akkadian is the language of the Assyrians. The Akkadian and Sumerian inscriptions and Babylonian inscriptions, heaven was used as a, an allegory describing the seats of power and government on earth. So heaven does not necessarily mean space or anything up in the atmosphere. And where heaven is um, described in those terms, we often see that the term earth stood for the, the common people of, of society. And there's a, that there's a prophecy in Isaiah where, where those words are used in that manner. In, um, I'm sorry, it's not in, in Isaiah, it's in Leviticus, so it's older than Isaiah by a thousand years, or just <laughs> 900 at least. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron, and your earth as brass. What does that mean? That means that the rulers who are over you are going to be very, very hard on you. And the people who are like you are going to also give you a very difficult time. That's what it means. I will make your heaven like iron and your earth as brass. It, it means that your society is going to become very, very difficult to exist in as part of your punishment. And, and well, that's what we live in today. Today, our heaven is like iron. And our earth is like brass. It, it's very hard on us. We don't realize how bad it is in, in this um, consumerist, selfish, um, egocentric society in which we live, where at the same time our government is taxing the, 
most of our the fruits of our labor and taking taking it away and giving it to others well there it is your heavens is iron and your earth is in brass so where it says there was war in heaven that doesn't necessarily mean that there was some kind of star wars scenario and and um the mothership got cast down to earth and and all the angels came out <laughs> that's not what it's saying and to 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 make deductions like that from the scripture without considering the um, possibilities and the way the language was used in ancient times is also quite childish. There's some things we can know and there's some things we can't, but the heaven of this war could have been a society here on earth that is, it, its origins and beginnings aren't and still are not fully revealed to us. And that society could have been established hundreds of thousands of years before Adam. Who knows? Nobody can claim to know. So these angels that fell from heaven fell from their, their seat of, of government on the <coughs> earth, their seat of governance which God gave to them on the earth. That's very possible. It doesn't necessarily mean a war in space. This may have happened tens of thousands of years before Adam, but we know that it happened before Adam. We know that because these, this devil that led this rebellion against God in Revelation chapter 12 is identified as that old serpent, which can only be a reference to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. So that race of beings called angels, which Jude, the apostle, calls the angels who left their first estate, they were here in the garden when Adam was created. They were the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Adam was forbidden to touch. How do we know that? We do know that because the only law that the um, that Adam was given was not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam touched it, he was punished. That remained the only law. And then Adam's descendants in Genesis chapter 6 mingled with those angels. And when they did so, they were punished. And if they were punished, Paul of Tarsus tells us, that where there's no law, sin is not imputed. So they had to break a law. What law did they have to break? There was only one law, not to touch the tree to knowledge of good and evil. So by Genesis chapter 3, putting that together with that law and Genesis chapter 6, we know exactly what the fallen angels were and what the tree of knowledge of good and evil was. They were a race of people here that our race was told to stay away from and they didn't that's why they were all punished that's why they died in the flood because without transgressing a law they should not have been punished so now we know what law they transgressed because they were punished 
There is um, archaeology, which is um, it, it's possible that discoveries in Anatolia, such as Catalhoyuk, do describe a culture that is much older than Adamic culture. The biblical, the biblical culture, I will call Adamic culture, spawned the cultures of, of the Sumerians and the Akkadians and the Babylonians and, and of course, the Hebrews and Syria. And, and that's the birthplace of the white race as we know it. But there is archaeological discovery at Catalhoyuk and other places in Anatolia, which does um, betray a, an older civilization that we don't really know. However, the scripture tells us if we understand it the way we do in I, Christian identity and at Christogenia, the scripture tells us that the, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil or this um, race of fallen angels and these giants that appear in Genesis chapter 6 that we're told were already in the earth, the scripture tells us that these people were around for a long time before Adam was created. We don't know how long. The scripture doesn't tell us how long. They were just there. They could have been there for 100,000 years, and they corrupted God's creation where it's explained in, in simple language in the book of Enoch, how they corrupted God's creation by mixing kinds. We don't know how that was done. That doesn't necessarily mean that they had sex with animals. We're only told that it was done. How? We don't know. They mixed animals with each other. They mixed themselves with animals. We don't know the details, but we know that we have these other races here, and we can't account for their origins otherwise. But what we do know from the words of Christ in the New Testament, that they are all goat nations, and they are all facing the same destiny that the fallen angels are facing which is the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In the words of Christ, in his prophecies, not mine, in his parables, not mine, there are sheep and there are goats. And he tells us throughout the Bible who the sheep <coughs> are. So we know who the sheep are. And everyone who's not a sheep, he says, is a goat. And all the goats have their destiny in the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. How could that be their destiny unless that was their origin? That's all I could say. I mean, I've done an entire podcasts just on that topic, but that's, <laughs> that, that's what the scripture indicates. And there are many other prophecies that go right along with that. Yeah. And, um, you know, also, you've said it many times, but also when, when we say the angels 
created or are responsible for these devils, bastards, mesmers, hybrids, whatever you want to call them. It's not saying they spoke them into existence or, you know, they formed them out of the ground from clay and created a new life form. They simply mixed animal species together. You know, they violated the law kind after kind. That's all they did. Not saying they're gods or anything like that. Well, well, the Canaanites were mixing with the Kenites, who were the descendants of Cain. They were mixing with the Rephaim, who were the giants, descendants of the giants. And there's a, several, there's a couple of races in the land of Canaan that aren't even mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, that have no origin with the descendants of Noah, the, with the white race, the Adamic race. So where did they come from? We're not told where they came from. They're just there. And that there's that they're given colorful names in Scripture. In Genesis chapter ten, we see the list of the descendants of of um, Noah. But in Genesis chapter fourteen, what we see the Emim and the Zuzuim or Zuzumim or or whatever it it, it is. I I, I don't even. <laughs> I can't even remember unless I look. Zuzims, that's it. And, and let, let me get this passage up on, on, on my screen. It's Genesis chapter 14, verse 5. Zuzim, the Zuzims in Ham. Now Ham was the, the land of Ham. It was later known as Ethiopia. Well, well, the Zuzims in Ham, Zuzim means roving creatures. So these are people they were only described as roving creatures. Why? Because the ancient Hebrews didn't know what the hell they were. They were just roving creatures. Imagine today looking at the things coming out of Mexico, and if we didn't have a name for them, we would just call them roving creatures because that's how they act and that's what they are. And then the emins... Taco uh, goblins... That the yeah that exactly and and, and taco goblins that these emims the word emim <laughs> is defined as terror. So they had people that were described as roving creatures and as terrors. This is Genesis chapter fourteen. This is only three generations, or I'm sorry, three chapters after the descendants of Noah are described and all named by their tribes. And we have roving creatures and terrors. Where the hell did they come from? Well, well, if you go to like Atlanta, Georgia, you'll see terrors. They're roving the streets all the time. <laughs> and and if we, we didn't call them niggers, what would we call them? And you could try to dress them up and call them black people, but... When you get enough of them together, they're not people any longer because they cease to act like people. They act like terrors. So they had this problem in Abraham's yeah, time as well. Yeah, we call it a pack of niggers. They had this problem in Abraham's time as well, where they had roving creatures and terrors. And they were considered a threat. And they didn't come from Noah. And they were probably there for 10,000 years or longer. The Bible upholds our worldview. It upholds it from Genesis to Revelation. 
but you can't understand Genesis without understanding the parables of Christ and the revelation. And Christ told us that. I came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He told us that. One of the points that you make here is that these people that deny the concept of two seed line focus on Genesis. Maybe you want to discuss that. Yeah, at least half the argument that they, they always seem to, you know, and I've watched many different videos and read many different, you know, essays. They seem to be very uncomfortable leaving Genesis. They'll give the odd quote from Christ, of course, because they have to, but they don't give a walkthrough through Noah and his descendants or the prophets or the apostles or revelation. It's all just very focused word for word. They go over words and lines in Genesis just over and over again, just to try and disprove to seed line. That's always their strategy. And, and that's a dishonest strategy because Christ said that he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. We cannot assume that Genesis tells us the whole story. We can't make that assumption. The revelation of God didn't want to reveal that to men when Moses wrote, Genesis, even though it is evident in the book of Genesis, when you get to places like Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 15, you have these Kenites, you have these Rephaim, these are non-Adamic people. Where did they come from? The only explanation Christ gives and he does provide the explanation in Revelation chapter 12 and in Matthew chapter 13 that they came from fallen angels and the fallen angels are collectively Satan and whoever was their leader in ancient times was called the devil. But they're all devils because they're identified as devils later in scripture. They're identified as devils by Christ. They're identified as devils by Peter. So collectively, they are, they are devils, and they each one of them could be the devil at any particular time. So these things are very plain in Scripture if we would only see that these people are devils even when their behavior is good, regardless of whether their behavior at any particular time is good or bad. What sin did Judas Iscariot commit when Christ said to his apostles, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? Judas was already a devil. Christ didn't say one of you will be a devil like when you sin. What sin did Judas commit? Judas didn't commit any sin even when he betrayed Christ. That is not a sin. Show me where that's a sin because sin is transgression of the law according to John. There's no sin. So why was Judas called a devil? He was called a devil because he was an Edomite, because he wasn't a son of Adam. Paul of Tarsus explains in the epistle to the Hebrews that you are either a son or a bastard. There's no third choice. Paul also explains that Esau the ancestor of the Edomites, was a fornicator. Paul used that same word elsewhere to describe race mixing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
if you look in Genesis, it's very clear that Esau was a race mixer, that he took wives of the Canaanites, and that greatly troubled his mother. And eventually his father also woke up to the problem. So two seed line is throughout the scripture. It's not just in Genesis. And the New Testament explains Genesis for us because for one reason or another, God kept certain things secret from the foundation of the world so that they could be revealed in Christ. That's the words of Christ himself. I have a paper on Christogenia that I wrote over 10 years ago called On Biblical Exegesis, which explains this, which explains why we really cannot understand Genesis unless we understand the New Testament. So addressing two seed line only from a Genesis perspective is dishonest. Yeah, and Bill, um, they always, always use that argument. Whenever you bring up that Judas Iscariot was a devil, they'll go, well, um, you know, Christ said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And they try and link it as though it's the same thing. But it's very different. Satan simply means the adversary. And anyone of our race can do things contrary to God's will, you know. And we always pray that we will repent and do the right thing. But devil is a genetic term. There's no way Judas Iscariot can join our side. He will always be a genetic devil and part of Satan. It's two very different things. Well, well, right. If Adamic people didn't have the capacity to sin, then there wouldn't be a law. We wouldn't need it. Why would we need the law? So if we look at the context in which Christ said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, the word of God said that Christ had to die. There were dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament stating that the Messiah would come and that the Messiah would be killed, would be cut off. It's in Daniel, it's in Isaiah, and, and it's in several of the Psalms, and, and it's in Zechariah. And I quoted some of these in my podcast last night. But, well, anyway, <clears throat> the Word of God said that the Messiah had to die, and Peter had already recognized that Christ was indeed the Messiah. The apostles recognized this right from the beginning, John chapter 1. Christ told him several times that he was going to wind up going to Jerusalem and being killed. But when Christ repeated that at that point in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it might be in Matthew chapter, um, chapter 16. Yes, Matthew chapter 16. Um, when Christ explained what was going to happen to him. Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So Peter is rebuking a man whom he has already recognized to be the Messiah and said, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. So Peter is telling God what's going to happen. That is making yourself an adversary to God, because God already wrote in the books of the prophets what was going to happen. So Peter was setting himself in opposition to God, which makes Peter a Satan, 
which is the sin of the original fallen angels. So, if you want to oppose God, yes, that word Satan is what it means. It means the adversary, the opposition. That's all it means. That doesn't make Peter a devil, and Peter was corrected, and Peter conformed to his correction. So he's no longer a Satan because he conformed to his correction, which is what we've all done in our lives. That's what sin is. Sin is setting yourself in opposition to God. God said, thou shalt not steal. If you go and sin, then you're setting yourself in opposition to God because you're stealing, and he told you not to. Later on, Peter wrote in his epistles, warning people that your adversary, the devil, walks about seeking whom he may devour. How does that not describe the typical Jewish lawyer <laughs> or Jewish shyster? How does that not describe how that race of people has always behaved all throughout history? So Peter was aware of devils, the real devil. All the arguments against two-seed line are sophistry. Every one of them is a scheme. Charles Weissman's full of it. And we'll get to Weissman. I don't, I, it might be next program or something. I, I, I don't know if you have... Um, <laughs> A whole lot more. But Bill, I, I just had a quick question. Um, <laughs> you know the serpent symbol in a circle? Uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. The bus. Do you think that that was a symbol that people were aware that the white Adamic race was surrounded by this serpent race? Do you think that could be where the origin of it came from? Absolutely. Because it's a very that. old symbol. I absolutely believe that. And and that's why we find it in, in the Eddas. That's why we find it in, in Ragnarok, the, the world serpent that surrounds the camp of the saints in Revelation chapter 20. It, it's a symbol for all of the non-Adamic races. That's the flood that the serpent sends out of his mouth to persecute the woman. This symbolism is as old as our race. If you go back to ancient um, the ancient Babylonian creation literature, you have Tiamat, the serpent, who created um, men from chaos. What that represents to me is the devil corrupting the original creation of God and creating chaos from which these other ancient cultures emerged. And the symbol even is seen in Egypt. So they must, there must have always been a portion of our race, not well, necessarily just our Israelite race, but the wider Adamic race the, who were uh, at least aware of this. Okay. And sadly, um, it all fell on deaf ears. In ancient Mesopotamia, the giants that were always in the earth, they came to be the rulers of cities. Gilgamesh was a giant. Og of Bashan was a giant. There are several giants in, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, that were rulers of cities. And we see this also in the Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh. 
Gilgamesh is mentioned as a giant in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have this concept of these serpents, these Rephaim giants, becoming the rulers over men. And not only in Egypt did the serpent become a symbol of rulership, the serpent was also a symbol of rulership in Mesopotamia. That the Akkadian kings used the serpent as a symbol of rulership, and they were always accompanied by a griffin. What's a griffin? A, a griffin is a chimera. It, it's one of those beasts that were made from parts of other beasts. And, and the, the ancient chimera, the, the mixtures of men and beasts in the satyr and, and in the, um, what, what are those things called, those Greek things that are half man, half horse? I'm sorry, I've, uh, the centaur, the centaur, that, centaurs. These, that these beasts are representations of the corruption of God's creation by these fallen angels in ancient times. I, I mean, there's a lot of two seed line in our myths and legends that we don't even see because we really don't understand our Bibles and we don't put them in the proper perspective. When you read the Babylonian and, and Akkadian creation literature, you're reading the other side of the story from the Bible. And everything falls into place. Yeah, the um, giants were always described as heroes and heroic. And it was always the law of the jungle, the biggest, strongest, always ruled, rather than with our society, you know, like a royal bloodline or something along those lines. Well, well in Greece, Such as the kings of Judah. In the ancient Greek epics, you have the 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 um, the war in heaven between the gods, and and Apollo cast the serpent out of heaven. There are two competing myths. There's one where Zeus cast a serpent out of heaven. There's another one where Apollo cast a serpent out of heaven. Go read Revelation chapter twelve again. There's the battles between the gods and the giants. The battles of the titans titans in ancient greek myths i'm not saying that that should be part of our religion but we should understand that those things are parallels and, and represent primordial myths that came from the truth of two seed line ancient truths yeah. which our race <clears throat> and, understood um... because two seed line is the bible the bible is the story of Two seed line. It, it's not the two seed line is new. This belief was the belief taught by the apostles, was the belief taught in the prophets. It just wasn't spelled out in the language that we use to spell it out. This was taught by Christ. The wheat and the tares. It just wasn't taken and, and summarized and encapsulated the way that we teach it. While the Bible story was developing, you can't teach the whole Bible. We teach the whole Bible. Yeah, and I also think it's important to understand it's a very different world now. There weren't two billion Chinese then or a billion Africans then. We weren't, they didn't see millions upon tens of millions, hundreds of millions of these bastards just pouring into white countries. You know, even um, was it Ezekiel who saw the vision and he could only imagine that it was 
an army invading, he, he would never imagine that we invited these people in willingly. Right. You, you know, the, the um, population figures, populations can explode. I have a chart somewhere at Christagenia, which shows precisely how the children of Israel who were in Egypt could have very easily gone from 75 people to 2 million people in eight generations. All it takes is for every um, reproducing couple to have seven children. That's all it takes. And I have this, the chart in a spreadsheet and all the math is there and you can change the numbers and play with it. And it's very <laughs> easy to do, to go from 75 people to 2 million people in about eight generations. If everybody who can reproduce has at least seven children. Now, seven children isn't anything compared to the number of children a lot of our women had in, in the establishment of the colonies, the English colonies here in America. Uh, I mean, uh, my great-grandmother had seven kids, but she came from a family of 18 kids. 18 kids. And that was very typical of, of many pioneer families. All they had was kids. Now, not all those kids survived to adulthood, but a good number of them did. So we go into China and Africa in the 16, 17, 1800s. We bring them our plumbing technology. We bring them our medical technology. We bring them our food production technology. Then we industrialize those places and their populations explode, while ours diminish comparatively because we tax our own people to death for the benefit of bringing these others all this wonderful technology. Their populations were much smaller 200 years ago in ratio to ours. We should probably get on with this, Charles. You only have to look at... I think I've covered most yeah, of Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say that. Here we, we, <laughs> we and, and this is going to take several weeks at least. I, I, I don't know if you're going to be on board for the whole thing. That's up to you. But here we shall make a discussion of many yeah, points sure. addressing aspects of the book. What about the seed line doctrine? A biblical examination and explanation of the Cain satanic seed line doctrine by Charles A. Weissman. And the copies available on the internet of this book are all missing pages two and three. So I don't know what Weissman wrote under the subtitle, The Basis of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine. I hope to find it. I've been looking through Clifton's library for a copy. There's a very good chance he has one. I haven't yet located it. If he has it, I'll find it before the series is over and, and get those missing pages. But today, most of our discussion, I, I hope to limit to the second chapter of Weissman's book, which is subtitled A Scriptural Analysis. And I believe that once we see some of Weissman's arguments and his methods of analysis, we certainly shall find 
that he failed to answer the question in the title of his book. I, I don't know if you want to say anything. Well, it's just, it's just so bizarre because his argument just doesn't make sense. And he does such a poor job of actually representing what two seed line is. As you said, he uses really old arguments. He never seems to have done research, you know, on the latest arguments and really done a good job on pre presenting what two seed line is all about. I don't. This book was copyright January 1997. In January 1997, I was just about to discover Christian identity. So, Weissman, like I said, he was five years older than my father. He was born in 1931. He'd been around a long time. But you're probably right <coughs> that he never updated his... Um, his arguments to match what Christian identity teachers of two seed line were really saying. These are based on very old two seed line teachings, and most of them I don't agree with, or or I've actually done great improvements on. So I, I can't um squeeze everything I teach about two seed line into an answer to Weissman, but I can show the fault of many of his arguments, and I hope to do so over the coming weeks. On pages four to five, for instance, Weissman acknowledges that trees can represent people and nations, which is what we claim. But he makes a dishonest conclusion where he states, because the cedar tree of Ezekiel 31 was described as having great beauty, it is next said that this tree was able to sexually seduce Eve. And perhaps Weissman believed that that ridiculous conclusion, which he himself contrived, discredits our position. Because nobody that I know of said that the cedar tree in Ezekiel 31 seduced Eve. That's ridiculous. In Ezekiel chapter 31, there is an allegory which compares the Assyrian nation to a magnificent cedar tree. And then there is, in the same allegory, the lesser nations are compared to lesser trees, trees that don't have as great a stature. And that was true of the time that Ezekiel wrote, because he wrote during the height of the Neo-Assyrian Empire at the end of the 7th century BC. So, we, we could see what the allegory is. And our two seed line claim is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also representative of a race of people. It's a similar allegory, but we're not saying that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the Assyrians. That's ridiculous. The Assyrians were descendants of Noah. They appear in Genesis chapter 10. There were no Assyrians before Asher was born 
as it is described in Genesis chapter 10. So <laughs> Weissman's argument is just seer sophistry. He constructed something that he could discredit, but it's not what we say. Weissman also admits that the Hebrew word for touch can mean to lie with a woman sexually. But then he dishonestly insists that if it were used in that manner in Genesis of Eve, then she must have lied with a woman. That's crazy. Weissman evidently didn't think to mention that if the word was used of a woman, that it could mean to lie with a man. The, the fact that touch can mean to lie with a woman as Weissman admitted, doesn't make that a technical definition of the word. Because there's a difference between a word with a technical definition and a word that's used as a euphemism or an allegory. And my example would be the English word manslaughter. The <laughs> English word manslaughter is typically used of someone who kills a man. But it's also used to describe someone who kills a woman. If I went and killed a woman, I would be arrested and charged with manslaughter. And it can also be used of a woman who kills a man or a woman who kills another woman. It's still, in our language, manslaughter. The sophistry of Weissman's argument is common throughout his entire book, and anyone who cannot immediately see his dishonesty cannot possibly be reading his material with any degree of objectivity. If I yeah. lie with a woman and, and write that I touched her, then if a woman lies with a man, we could write that she touched him. It's just an, a, a euphemism. That's all it is. It's a euphemism. This is a, in, in Genesis 3, this is a parable. And symbolic language is being used to describe what happened. So it's full of allegories and euphemisms. Weissman also made the ridiculous argument, and, and I really didn't, want to address it in my notes, but he made the ridiculous argument that if Eve touched the tree, and that means she slept with a man, then when Adam ate the same fruit, that means he slept with a man. And that's also a ridiculous conclusion that's not necessitated by the allegory which is used in Genesis. Moving on to, um, I, I don't know if you have any other points throughout this book, please feel free to, to raise them because I'm, I'm just attacking certain things. And I did that in order to save <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of time, <laughs> but we could take a lot of time if, if yeah, you so yeah. desire. So don't, I don't mind. I can go through it step by step, word by word. I don't mind. But I well, mean, when you read this, like, as you said, objectively, you know, alarm bells should be going off that this guy is being deceiving and he's making straw man arguments over and over again. Absolutely. And as you said, with Adam having to, you know, sleep with a man or that 
Eve made him a homosexual or anything, except with Satan or the serpent, and then she went and slept with Adam. You know, there's always multiple ways you can interpret a verse often, and you have to look at the rest of the Bible and then see which one fits. Absolutely. And looking at the rest of the Bible is extremely important. On, on page six, and, and I want to get to this next um, this next allegory. On page six, Weiss, Weissman made the insistence that, and I quote, fruit is not the act of sex. It is the result or product of sexual relations or of a seed that is germinated. Nowhere in scripture is the term fruit used for sexual relations or to mean a seed or taking of a seed. And that doesn't represent what we say. It doesn't represent anything that I've ever said, but it doesn't even say that Eve ate a fruit. There's nothing that says that Eve ate a fruit in, in, in Genesis chapter three. She ate of the tree, but Weissman's only assuming that that means that she ate fruit. So let's roll with that. And I'll explain it first. There is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we can know that the ancient Hebrews were familiar with this epic because Gilgamesh is mentioned as one of the giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they knew of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was a significant Akkadian legend, meaning that by Akkadian, it was written in the Assyrian language, which was the language of the Assyrians, Akkadian, named after Akkad, the famous city that became the capital of the Assyria, of the Assyrian nation later on. But Akkad was around evidently before, <clears throat> before the Assyrians were around, because Akkad was the one of the cities named as the beginning of the empire of Nimrod. So Gilgamesh was a significant Akkadian legend in the time of Abraham and Moses, which that time is about 400 years apart, one from the other. And both men were indeed acquainted with the Shemitic culture of Mesopotamia. Abraham was a lifelong resident of Mesop Mesopotamia before he was called to the land of Canaan at the age of 75. And Moses was a prince raised in the house of Pharaoh. So he would have been educated in the cultures of the surrounding nations. That was the custom of the time. When you were a prince being raised in the house of a king, you learned all of the highest learning available from all of the surrounding nations because you would be expected to be able to conduct diplomacy with those nations. Moses, for 40 years, was in the house of Pharaoh until he departed from Egypt after killing the Egyptian. For 40 years, he was educated in the courts of a great king. Moses wasn't any dummy. People shouldn't expect that. Just because the Bible doesn't detail his education, any prince in the house of a pharaoh is going to be highly educated 
in all of the surrounding cultures. Moses knew Gilgamesh. There is no doubt. Knowing the literature of the time, when you write, you're going to use the, the, the same idioms and allegories that were found in the literature which you learned. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, there is a similar allegory using fruit to describe the act of sexual relations. There is this character, Enkidu, and Enkidu is also one of the giants, just like Gilgamesh. Enkidu was created by the gods to compete with Gilgamesh, and because Gilgamesh was seen as being too powerful. <clears throat> and as long as the character Enkidu was a virgin, he had a special relationship with the animals of the forest. And Gilgamesh observed that, and he wanted to undermine that relationship. So he instructed a hunter as to how to corrupt Enkidu, and the hunter does it. The hunter goes and gets a harlot and brings the harlot into the forest where Enkidu is and has the harlot seduce Enkidu. This is kind of like the opposite of the Genesis story. So, where it describes that Enkidu, what he would do if he saw the harlot, it reads, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness. As soon as he sees her, he will draw near to her. Then it says of Enkidu's relationship with the harlot that the lass freed her breasts and bared her bosom and he possessed her ripeness. So it's using an allegory of a word that we usually use of fruit. But there's more. After Enkidu lost his virginity, we may read where it is described of him, but now he had wisdom, broader understanding. Then the harlot herself proclaimed to Enkidu, thou art wise, Enkidu, art become like a god. These words are exactly similar to what we find in the aftermath of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. It's the same exact language. So, there is much more evidence than our claims concerning the allegorical uses of the words tree, eat, and touch, which proves the veracity of our interpretation. And Weissman never addressed most of that evidence. He only tried to exploit a few words and twist their definitions. But while we see the allegory in the contemporary epic of Gilgamesh, contemporary to the time of Moses, Weissman's argument that nowhere in Scripture is the term fruit used for sexual relations or to mean a seed or taking of a seed is also a <clears throat> lie. That's a lie. While the, or, while the allegory was not used very often, and while it really doesn't matter whether it was ever used again, it is found again. It's found in the Song of Solomon near the end of chapter 4. The context 
is set in verses 9 to 11, where we read, and this is the words of Solomon, Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. And he wasn't talking about um, a, a bunch of bottles of ointment that she had. He was talking about the ointment which exudes from her body. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Lebanon at that time was basically a cedar forest. And that's explained in the Epic of Gilgamesh, as well as in the Old Testament. Lebanon wasn't the dry, rocky place that we picture today. It was a vast cedar forest. Then in verse 12, Solomon continues, and we read, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Then, after likening her endowments with many types of fruit, we read where she answers in verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Since the king had described her as this garden, this answer to his words must also be the woman making a reference to herself. The picture drawn in this chapter is clearly one of sensual love which a man has for his wife. She was the garden and she wanted him to eat of it. And in plain language, she was inviting him to bed. So Charles Weissman is a liar, a plain liar. Yeah, and it seems, you know, just these words, to eat, to touch, to lay, it's just polite ways of, you know, it just explaining having sex Euphemism. with a man and a woman. And, you know, that's that's very common today. We do the same thing, you know. This is And, um, you know, also if you look at, like, the King James, uh, the King James Bible, you can see that, the way it was written, the language is just quite different. We don't speak like that anymore. And, you know, there's always going to be different allegories that different cultures use. And you can very clearly see in Genesis what he means by to eat and to touch and to lay. If I saw a beautiful woman talking to a handsome young man, and I saw the beautiful woman saying to the handsome young man, why don't you come into my garden and eat of my fruits? And he didn't understand that that was an invitation to go get married. I would ask him if he was freaking stupid. Are you stupid? <laughs> you don't get what she's saying to you? <laughs> Evidently, 
Charles Weissman read the Song of Solomon at some point in his long career in biblical studies, and he was stupid. He didn't understand that Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, was about sex. Wow. He's supposed to be an expert on the law. He wrote the handbook on biblical law. He doesn't understand the first law, not to touch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't understand that first law, but he claims to be an expert on the law. He's a joke. Paul said, where there is no yeah. law, sin is not imputed. And Yahweh wiped out a whole generation of men for sleeping with the fallen angels. Why? Because he didn't have a law? Of course he had a law. Not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, the fallen angels must have been the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or Yahweh God himself is an unjust executioner. Which is it? You can only have it one way or the other. Which is it? I would love to debate with Charles Weissman, but he wouldn't even debate with Clifton Emmerheiser. And Clifton challenged him many times. I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Well, um, just briefly on the Gilgamesh, it's interesting that the oldest ever story we have of antiquity is about giants, about a giant that is described as two-thirds God and one-third man. Now, obviously, that God would be referring to angels or the beings that descended from heaven or from the sky and began mixing. And the oldest story we've ever got straight away that's the theme of the Bible. And even Ekindu was meant to be part beast and part man, you know, a giant as well. He had horns and hoofs. So so it's just really interesting that, that that's the theme of the first story. And even the fact that it's so specific, two-thirds God, one-third man, you know, they understood that the more angel and the less animal, uh, you know, the more, the better or greater being you would be. You know, it's just astonishing. Well, well right. There are um, classical scholars who have found or who set forth the proposition that even the epics of Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, were affected by the epic of Gilgamesh, that Homer must have found some inspiration in the epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> now, it can be proven through the pages of the histories of Herodotus and other ancient Greek writings that the Greeks understood the Akkadian language and had diplomacy with the Assyrians. And there were even Greeks, and, and this is found in the lyric poets, there were even Greek mercenaries in the Babylonian armies that destroyed Jerusalem. The Greeks, uh, I mean, all these ancient people did not exist in little separate vacuum bottles. They, they had a lot of common culture and cultural exchanges and intercourse between them. So when I say intercourse in, in that manner, I'm not actually, <laughs> actually talking about sex, but there was probably some of that too. Um, the Greeks were familiar with the Akkadian literature. The Epic of Gilgamesh has survived to us in large chunks 
from several ancient inscriptions. I don't think we have the the whole epic, but we have large portions of it. And I've read that, and I've read the Homeric literature, and I understood the correlations. I've just never written on them because that's not my area. I'm not a classical scholar. I'm a Christian identity teacher, or, or if you want to call me a teacher. So that's what I do, and that's where I try to focus my um, my literary efforts. But there are scholars who have made many connections between Greek culture and the Epic of Gilgamesh, and Gilgamesh and similar Assyrian um, stories and epics certainly were prominent in, in and well-known in and throughout ancient Mesopotamia and the Near and Middle East and even the Mediterranean Basin. This can't be ignored. And the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, is the antithesis to the literary genre <laughs> that Gilgamesh represents. Because Gilgamesh was written at, as historiography. It, it was an epic poem that told a story that these ancient people actually believed. And Gilgamesh was listed in the Sumerian king list. The list of ancient Sumerian kings, the name Gilgamesh appears. And Gilgamesh is listed in the Dead Sea Scrolls as one of the Rephaim, one of the ancient rulers who descended from the giants that are named in Genesis chapter 6. And those giants did not originate in Genesis chapter 6, as many people mistakenly think. The giants were already in the earth. This is an entire... Yeah. Um, it, this is... An, an entire thread in scripture and ancient world cultures that idiots like Charles Weissman, and I'm going to call him an idiot because he just ignored all of this. He ignored it all. He refused to um, better interpret the whole Bible rather than just the narrow view that he had of Genesis chapter 3. And he ignored all of this other evidence that we have that we can what we can make a compilation of, and it all proves to seed line. Absolutely. And also interestingly, if you just go a little bit further, uh, you know, just one more thing about Gilgamesh is that later on, uh, to get immortality, it's stolen by the serpent. You know, <laughs> the immortality was taken away by a serpent. That's just so close to the Adam and Eve story where, you know, the fall of Adam and Eve that that survived in, you know, that uh, written form. Well, well, right. And, 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 and that's all well and good. I use Gilgamesh to prove uh, there's a paper on, on Christogenia that I wrote probably in 2004, maybe 2005 called Shemitic Idioms and Genesis Chapter 3. And it's not complete. It only added new information to things that were always taught about Genesis 3 by um, two seed line pastors. Two seed line pastors always taught 
that the serpent was an individual and Satan. Now, the discredit to that is that some two seed line pastors did imagine that Satan was a spiritual being who came down from heaven and seduced Eve. Is that necessary? <clears throat> no, that's not necessary. <clears throat> some um, two seed line pastors taught that the tree of knowledge of good and evil simply represented the act of sex. Is that necessary? No, that's not necessary. That's not the way I look at it. To me, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the entire race of fallen angels, and they knew good and evil because at one time they were angels. They knew good, but they rebelled against God and experienced evil. So they knew good and evil. And I, I actually address that, that very um, euphemism with scripture later in my arguments against Weissman. Because Christ, and I don't remember the exact passage that I use, but it's already written into my notes that we, we will probably get to in the next segment because it's already getting late in this one. But, well, it said that Christ knew no sin. Paul of Tarsus wrote that Christ knew no sin. So, does that mean that Christ didn't know what sin was? Of course Christ knew what sin was. He knew no sin because he committed no sin. So if you know evil, that means you committed evil. It's not only an awareness of something, but the experience of it. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the entire race of fallen angels that rebelled against God because they turned to evil. And Satan isn't necessarily a then spirit you... in some ethereal um, heavenly existence. Satan is a, a man here on earth who seduced Eve. And then you also have, I think it's worth noting, when Christ made the blind man able to see the first thing he says what do you see and he says i see is it people as trees or trees as people i see men you know as trees when you walking. think about it you I know that's that's walking. that can't that has to be a sign well well yeah i do believe that that was a, a something that was said to try to wake up to this allegory of trees because the allegory of trees is is very prevalent in the gospel of christ and we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. I'm sure Weissman's already twisted something about it later in his book. <laughs> I think that's about all that. Yeah, uh, some kind of explanation. Have. I think that's about all that we're going to have um, today. And I made eight pages of notes for this, but I think I only got to page two. So I don't have to do much <laughs> yeah. to prepare for next week. I'll do a little more. If 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 you'll yeah. be here with me next no, week, we'll great, continue Bill. this as a series. I, I want to get through this book, and I want to address all of. Um, if I don't address every point, yeah, Weissman that'd be brilliant. Makes, I'd love to do that. If I don't address every point Weissman makes, I will address plenty of points that exhibit his tendency to twist definitions, 
his narrow-minded arguments, his treachery in the fact that he creates straw men arguments to argue against our concept, but he doesn't repeat our arguments. He never argues against anything that I really teach about Genesis chapter 3. And I'll progress through his Yeah, book. it's like he picked the weakest arguments. Well, well he, he, he picked the weakest arguments that he could create. <laughs> this isn't what I say. <laughs> okay. That, that's wonderful. And, and thank you for being here and praise Yahweh. Yep. Could, could I do the outro, Bill? Sure. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of the niggers, the gooks, the tiddlywinks, or any other devils. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. Thank you.